Good morning, everyone. Today's reading is from Matthew 5, verses 27 through 32. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Adam. Good morning again. Uh, my name is Harrison. I'm one of uh, your pastors here at EP and privileged to, to be so. Will you join me in prayer? Father, Lord God, thank you for your time that you give to us this morning. Father, you have blessed us. You let us come together and worship together before your throne. Father, as a part of that, you, you take us to your word. Lord, and you command us to learn from it with open and sincere hearts. Father, I pray this morning that our hearts would indeed be open and sincere that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness. Lord, that we would hunger and thirst for you. Father, I pray for this one that would open your word and preach the gospel. Lord, that I would decrease and you, you would increase. For you are worthy of honor and glory and praise. In Christ's name, amen. One of the reasons I, I love to, to preach on texts that take us to the gospel, especially in relation to, to marriage, is that I get to go to one of the most classic movies of all time, The Princess Bride, <laughs> and quote one of my favorite theologians, when he says, Mowage. Mowage is what brings us together today. Mowage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. At least that's the way the clergyman puts it in The Princess Bride. That dream within a dream. Of course, marriage is a lot more than a dream, isn't it? It's something created by God that reflects his relationship with his people. In scripture, Christ is often referred to as the bridegroom and the church of Jesus Christ as the bride, and it's much more than a dream, it's real. God initiated this grand thing we call marriage in Genesis. We go back to Genesis in chapter one. 
And we begin to see it in verse 26. I'll read a little bit there and then a little bit in chapter 2 of Genesis. That God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So you had a union there with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the beginning. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, he- of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And then in chapter two, beginning in verse 23. And then the man said, looking at Eve, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's so much there that informs what Jesus tells us here in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mountain that he tells us later in Matthew 19 that Paul tells us later in 1 Corinthians 7 that there is man and there is woman and they are to be married uh, to each other and only to each other. And we see in Matthew 19 that what God has joined together let no man separate. That they are to become one flesh. It also tells us in this creation place that they were naked and were not ashamed. They were naked and they were not ashamed because sin had not yet entered the world. Well, the passage is speaking of a physical nakedness, but also a spiritual nakedness. There was nothing to hide their spirit. There was nothing to hide who they were from God. And we know that is so because after they've sinned, they hide from God. And Adam, when he's asked why, he said, because I was naked and ashamed. Instead of being naked and unashamed, suddenly they're naked and ashamed because sin has entered the world. In the creation, everything was was, was perfect. There was purity. There was peace. It was lovely before God. There was man and there was woman and they were married to each other. And we know from Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians Seven, that that is still the way it's supposed to be. That marriage consists of one man and one woman that are married to each other. You say, well, there's more in this passage in Matthew 5 than marriage. And he starts off talking about lust for a few verses. Yes, he does. But even here, his speaking of lust is primarily pointing towards the marriage relationship and the adultery that happens as a result of lust. In the creation but before the fall, there was no lust. 
There was no adultery because there was no sin. It wasn't a dream within a dream, but it was, it was reality. And there was no shame between man and woman, between people and God. And then the fall. We call it the fall, but we're not speaking of autumn. Not a season in the year. It's the fall because man fell from their sinless state into sin. When things fall, what happens? They break. Not always. But typically, when something falls, something breaks. And so it is in the fall of man when when they, when, when they fall from their sinless state into sin, there's brokenness. There's brokenness of a relationship between God and man, brokenness of the relationship between man and woman, between uh, humans and creation, between people and each other. There's brokenness that occurs as a result of the fall. Before they were naked and unashamed, now they're naked and ashamed. Nakedness and sexuality are both now clothed with shame. Because of sin. So much was destroyed in that place. The value of women was destroyed. After the fall, they were seen as objects to be controlled, used, discarded. And we see it in this passage. When they ask Jesus, or or when Jesus is speaking to them with their unanswered questions, or unasked questions, regarding divorce and and, and marriage and and, and lust, he, he tells them that, hey, yes, Moses said, you can give a woman a certificate of divorce and be done with her. What the teaching meant was you can't just kick a woman out of your house. You can't just take your wife and say, there's the door, hit the road. You have to give her a certificate of divorce. You can still tell her to hit the road. You can still kick her out of your house, but at least give her a certificate of divorce. Really? Really? And Jesus comes to this place and he says, no. No, divorce can't happen unless these things have happened. The fall destroyed the value of women. Faithfulness itself was destroyed because of the fall. Faithfulness from man towards God, not God towards man, never. We, earlier we sang of God's faithfulness. God has always been faithful. But faithfulness of man towards God was destroyed at the fall. And faithfulness of man towards man was destroyed at the fall. Faithfulness in marriage was destroyed at the fall. Faithfulness in sexuality was destroyed. Destroyed because of the fall. One of the the most um, fun things I get to do as a pastor uh, is that I get to do a lot of weddings. And I love going over wedding vows with someone before they are married and we spend weeks going over those vows and what they mean and we take people deep into the gospel uh, of Jesus and it's, it's so sweet to see people come to a new understanding of their relationship with Jesus just as we talk through the vows. I've never had someone look at me and say, hey, can we take out all this stuff uh, about faithfulness in the vows? No, no one says, I, I don't want that in our vows. No one says, hey, can we change those uh, to say, hey, do you give uh, yourself to me uh, except when I want to go astray? 
No one wants to make adultery a part of their wedding vows, right? Of course not. Of course not. There's something in us we desire faithfulness. We desire loyalty because that's that's the way God's made us. It's part of our created order that we would desire that. God is loyal and faithful to us and and he's made us to be loyal and faithful to him. And in the created order as God has designed it, we're we're designed to be faithful to each other. It's something we long for. Uh, Friendships, marriage, they begin to fall apart where faithfulness and loyalty have fallen because of because of sin adultery breaks the promise of the lifelong exclusive loyalty that is supposed to be there in marriage where a man and woman would give themselves to each other and what God has put together let no man separate Smeads says that when two bodies are united physically united through the sexual union that two persons are united He says, nobody can go to bed with someone and leave his soul parked outside. The soul is in the act. We live in this this world where where the marriage union is is suffering and in many places destroyed. You might read in the news somewhere that that America is a Christian nation and that the majority of America uh, are Christians. Well... I really struggle with that. You know, maybe Christian as opposed to, to Muslim or something like that, but, uh, but not Christian in God's sense of the word. We, we might have 20% of, of Americans that have a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. There was a time when, if you looked at the statistics regarding divorce, you would see that, uh, that they were about the same for those that said they were Christians as those that said they weren't. About the same. What you have to dig deeper to find out is that those that have a vital relationship with Jesus Christ, that is those that are spending time with the Lord daily, those that are worshiping in a church often, that demographic, then the incidence of divorce is, is way down. It's much lower. What you would also find out if you looked at statistics today, you would find out that the incidence of divorce, generally speaking, is going down in America. And you might think, that's awesome. It's going down because people are bothering to get married. Not so awesome. They're not bothering to get married because, well, marriage has been destroyed. And sex has become something that is just free and easy. Did a wedding a couple of years ago where the couple were under pressure from their friends to not get married, but to just live with each other. And the way their friends, but they were losing friendships over it because I guess if this couple is going to get married, it puts pressure on others. The way their friends put it, that marriage is nothing but a piece of paper. My friends, where, where, there's, where there's marriage, and where there's sexuality, where there's a physical union of people, there's more than just a physical body that's involved. The soul is involved. Sex outside of marriage is more than just stealing a pencil from the office. 
Both are sin, but there's something about that sexual sin, adultery, fornication, whatever, whatever it is, that, that involves the whole person and all those around them. Even if others don't know about it, it involves and impacts your children, it impacts your spouse, it impacts others that you fellowship with, that you work with, that are in your community, and it impacts the entire culture. The fall destroys so much. There's a creation and there's a fall, but there's also redemption and restoration. You know, media, um, books, they make much of and sell much of the negative side of sexuality and brokenness of marriage. God makes much of redemption and restoration. Because God redeems and God restores. God redeems and God restores. Before we dive into this part of this, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, I want to make sure you, that you, you hear this. There's nothing more awesome about marriage than there is about being single. Being, being married is not the ultimate. Being in a relationship with Jesus Christ is the ultimate. For God has called many to be single. And you see it throughout Scripture. Marriage is not the ultimate. Relationship with Jesus is the ultimate. In this passage, though, God is speaking to us of marriage and redemption and restoration within that context. He redeems and he restores. He redeems us to himself into that relationship. And because of that, there is redemption within our relationships with others. Still, every marriage is is one sinner living with another sinner. And where you have that, it's like having lit matches and gasoline. There's going to be explosion every now and then. It's going to happen. No, never? Never. Well, not in my marriage. But in somebody else's, maybe. Never. Well, it, it, it can't happen. Okay, let's put it that way. It can't happen. There can be fireworks. There can be tension because it's two sinners living in close proximity to each other. And that's, that, that, can, that can happen. But it, can, it also is the case that, that that spouse is God's chief sanctification agent for you. Um, your, his chief sandpaper for you. That God will use that individual in your life to make you more, more like him. And that's a beautiful thing. He redeems and he restores. But what's our role in, in that redemption and restoration? Well, uh, a friend of mine, Bob Flayhart, calls it the gospel waltz. Don't have time to go into everything that is, but I'd love to talk to you more about that at another time. The gospel walks includes a three-step. Repent and believe, Jesus' first command. Repent and believe and obey. Three steps, repent, believe, obey. Repent, believe, obey. 
Repentance is a joyful, beautiful thing because God is waiting for us to repent. And he calls us to repentance, which tells us that he's there ready to receive our repentance and welcome us with open arms. But then he tells us to go from there and believe, to believe again the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we belong to him because of the work that he has done. We don't obey in order to, be, to, to build an identity with Jesus Christ. Because of our identity with Jesus Christ, we obey. There's a difference. We have to get the order right. We repent and believe, and then we obey because we believe that what he offers us really is better. Because Jesus is better. That has great impact on, on our marriages. What Jesus offers us is, is better than what the world would offer us. What's restored? What's restored is the value of women. What's restored is the value of men. No longer are they mere sexual objects to be used, discarded, cast aside. They're people created in God's image, as we read from Genesis. Equal wisdom, equal value. Different roles, I get it. But equal in value, restored. What's restored is marriage to its rightful place with holiness and, and faithfulness. Marriage is that reflection on earth of our relationship with Jesus Christ. What's restored is our relationship with God. And his faithfulness towards us is reflected in that marriage relationship. We move over to, to Matthew in chapter, chapter 19. And you see Jesus appealing to, to, to marriage when the Pharisees asked him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He says, have you not read that he who created them... Jesus is appealing back to that marriage relationship who created them from the beginning, made them male and, and female. So marriage is designed by God to be permanent. Does that mean that divorce is not allowed? Well, that's not what that means. But it wasn't allowed in the same way that that the Israeli law had allowed it. Where if you want to just be done with your wife, just kick her out the door, make sure you give her a piece of paper that says we are divorced and give her that certificate and she's on her way and you're done with her. That's not of God. Jesus tells us in Matthew 19, in, in Matthew 5, that divorce is allowed in cases of adultery. Where there's a sexual relationship outside of marriage. Paul uh, extrapolates on that a little bit when he goes into Matthew or in 1 Corinthians 7 when he speaks of abandonment, where, uh, where a believing spouse is abandoned by an unbelieving spouse or someone that's acting, living as if he is an unbeliever, not showing the fruit of being in, in a relationship with Jesus. So the divorce is allowed, but Jesus isn't saying, I command divorce in this place. This passage has been used in that way. He's not even encouraging. He's just saying it's allowed. Not commanded or encouraged. In, in either case, in either case, listen. Remember what was lost? One of the things that was lost is that from, from creation of the fall. In creation, they were naked and ashamed. In the fall, even though they were clothed, or they were naked and unashamed in the, 
creation. In the fall, even though they were clothed, they were ashamed. One of the beauties of redemption and restoration is that Jesus has taken our shame. It's gone. It's gone. He's taken our shame no matter what the sin is. My friends, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. I had a friend that um, she had been divorced through no fault of her own, and her pastor looked at her and said, you might as well sit on the back row. You're of no use to the kingdom of God. And you groan, and I groan in my heart at that and her pain. And yet, listen, listen. Christians do that. We are great at casting shame on other people. We're great at casting shame on other unbelievers and on believers if if their sin is one that we're not, you know, falling into. We conquer this, so we cast shame on all those that haven't. My friends, wherever you are in that, Jesus has taken our shame. You don't bear it anymore. The shame's taken, grabbed. Emphasis here isn't on when divorce is allowed, but on our return to the heart of God for his people. Uh, Faithfulness to him as he is to us with a faithful relationship. Emphasis on the heart of the matter on repenting and believing and obeying and walking with God in our identity as redeemed and restored people. We fight because of who we are in Jesus Christ. We fight a battle. If you have that relationship with Jesus Christ, you're a son or you're a daughter of the living Lord. You're a brother, you're a sister of Jesus. That's your identity, and you fight from that position with Christ at your back and the Holy Spirit within you. That fight, I'm going to give you two things that help spell out that fight. One, it's a violent defense, and two, it's an empowered offense. It's a violent defense, and it's an empowered offense. With the other I say statements that we have here in the the Sermon on the Mount, there's there's a, for example, in 21, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the, to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool. Well, then you get over into, into lust in verse 27 and 28. Um, let's go to 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out <laughs> and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of the members that, than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it's better to lose one of your members than that your whole body uh, get thrown into hell. Listen, they're, they're, that's kind of violent. <laughs> and you're thinking, does he really mean what he, what he says he means? Inconceivable. Yeah. No, he doesn't mean what he says he means. This is what we would call hyperbole in scripture. He's given an extreme example to tell us that this is a very dangerous situation. Lust is not something to be laughed at. No matter what the Super Bowl commercials tell you or TV shows or movies or your friends that you work with, lust, adultery, all that, it's not funny. It's something to fight against and fight hard against. That's what he's saying. He's saying, take this seriously because it destroys everything around you. 
He's asking us to have a hatred of those things that destroy his created order. A hatred of that which destroys. Because it impacts our relationships with our girlfriend, with our boyfriend, our spouse, all those around us. Expectations change and we begin to treat them as objects to be used and discarded. God calls us to have a hatred of those things that destroy. Not just in your own individual relationships, but there's, whenever, whenever we as, as people begin to engage in, in, in lust, when we begin to engage in pornography, internet pornography, we're also encouraging and supporting human trafficking. The human trafficking of men and women, young and old. God calls us to have a hatred of that which destroys not only our relationship with him but in our relationships with each other, but destroys those that are created in his image. How do you develop a hatred for that which destroys well, it begins with, with prayer. It begins with an empowered offense. We pray, we pray, we pray, we pray, we pray. The Holy Spirit who lives in us helps us to pray. When we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit helps us with groanings that we sometimes don't even understand. We pray. We dive into the empowered offense that we have. We don't have a lot of Bermuda grass around here. You know, what does Bermuda grass have to do with marriage? A lot. <laughs> you don't cut it, you get in trouble with your wife. No. No, seriously. It has a lot to do with it. Here, here's why. Um, unlike some other grasses, Bermuda grass withstands drought and weeds. You know why? Because the roots go down 10 feet. They go down 10 feet. So that when there is drought, when there's hard times, that Bermuda grass is still tapping in to, to the water, to the stuff of life. And it grows so thick and so close together that weeds can't find their way into it when it's healthy and mature. For marriage to be free from lust and adultery, we have to be tapping into the into the power that God has given us, the Holy Spirit, we are not alone. The Holy Spirit lives in us, so we abide, as we read in John 15. We abide in the vine, we abide in Christ. So abide, abide, abide in Jesus Christ. We dive into our, our marriage with, with what I call counter-conditional love. You've heard of unconditional love, you probably haven't heard of counter-conditional love. I don't know who made the term up, but I like it. Uh, unconditional love is I will love you no matter what you've done. Uh, counterconditional love is I will love you and I will bless your socks off. I read the story of a, uh, a teenage girl that was going to babysit uh, one evening and she gets there. She's babysitting for the single mom with a few kids and she walks in the door and there's very little furniture in the house. And the water's been cut off because the bill hasn't been paid. Unconditional love would be the girl saying, I'll babysit your kids anyway, even though there's no water and there's, no, there's very little furniture. 
Counterconditional love is what the, what the girl did. Counterconditional love says, I will babysit your kids and I will do it for free. And the second the single mom leaves, she picks up the phone and she calls her daddy and says, Daddy, can we get this woman's water turned back on? And of course, the daddy says, Absolutely. And it's the daddy that tells the story. That's counterconditional love. Counterconditional love says, I will love you, my sweetheart, no matter what you've done, and I will bless your socks off. I will do everything I can to make your day, your week, your year, your life. That's counterconditional love. That's the love that God has for you and for me. Rosaria Butterfield says, Sexuality was a part of God's good creation from the beginning, but with sin came a world filled with sexual brokenness. Thankfully, God is always in the business of restoration. My friends, Jesus doesn't just forgive you and leave you alone. Leave you where you were in the shadow of shame. The shame of sin is gone because he took it. He snatched it away from you. And he swallowed your shame in the crucifixion crush of his own death. Your shame is not your own anymore. Don't pick it up again. We close with a story that you might know well. It's the story of Eustace in the Chronicles of Narnia. Eustace uh, was a, uh, an arrogant, persnickety, sarcastic little boy. Uh, Eustace was a pain. <laughs> but he's on, he's on the trip with the rest of the gang, and he gave in to his lust. For Eustace, it was a lust for power and a lust for gold. He saw the gold as a way to get the power and he dives into the gold. He suffers the curse of the gold. And his lust for gold causes him to become a dragon. Big fire-breathing dragon. And of course, no one wants to hang out with a fire-breathing dragon, right? So Eustace finds himself suffering the consequences of his own sin. Aslan, the lion representing our Lord, comes to Eustace. And with his claws, the claws of a lion... He scrapes the scales from Eustace's body. He takes away the sin that belonged to Eustace. And he takes away the shame that belonged to Eustace. And he redeemed and he restored Eustace to not, not just the little boy that he used to be, but to someone that was better than, than he'd ever been before. Eustace's response was not only that he was redeemed, but he was restored to something better than he had ever been before. He was a kid that everybody wanted to be around these days because Eustace was someone that was loyal and faithful to his friends, even if it would mean the sacrifice of his own life. David Pallinson, wonderful brother, has gone on to be with our Lord, said sexual intimacy is intended to flourish within trustworthy fidelity. It is meant to express love and the generosity and gladness of mutual giving. Friends, that's Jesus loving you and helping you love each other. We pray with me. Father, would you help us to love you and help us to love each other? Lord, help us to love each other, even those that are um, we're married to in a way, Father, that brings you honor and glory. Father, where, where we are not married or where we are married, I pray that you would help us to walk 
with, with a sexual ethic, with faithfulness to you. Lord, that would, that would exhibit your faithfulness to us. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that's, that's feeling the shame of brokenness in sexuality or brokenness in marriage, Lord, I pray that even this morning you would hold them close and you would remind them again that you've taken our shame and you give us instead your name the name that is above every name. And you call us your own. Oh, glorious one, you call us your own. Amen.